Welcome to the For the Church podcast, another great gospel-centered resource from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Jared Wilson, and today we're honored to have, returning once again, Dr. Jason Allen, president of Midwestern Seminary and College. He's here to talk about his brand new book, Being a Christian, How Jesus Redeems All of Life. Dr. Allen, thanks so much for coming back. Jared, delighted to be in the studio with you, and uh, man, what a treat to be on the For the Church podcast. You know, I, I still remember uh, several years ago when we were dreaming about such a podcast and such a resource and uh, the way it's taken off, and then especially the podcast the past year or so under your leadership has been so encouraging for me and for many others, no doubt. So thank you for your service, and uh, just honored to be in the studio with you. Yeah, no, I'm really excited to talk about the book. I was glad to endorse it. I think it's a um, really helpful resource and a needful resource as well. Um, on that note, there's a lot of books that sort of come out in the kind of Christian living genre. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about the motivation behind the book and also sort of what kind of niche you think it fills? Yeah, thanks for asking. So first of all, you're right. There are a lot of books out in the Christian living genre. In fact, so much so, so many so, even wonder on the front end, man, is is there really a need for this? And talking with the, our friends at B&H, they, um, they thought there was absolutely a need and, a, um, and a, an opportunity there. So uh, so I wrote it though aware of that. So what do I have to say that's different, or 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 in addition to, or or perhaps might I dare say better than what is often stated out there? And so there's a balance, right? Many of us, myself included, um, I suppose yourself as well, Jerry. We grew up in context, kind of cultural Christianity, where Christianity, man, it often can be simplified to kind of a to-do list and a, and a not-to-do list. To-do list, you go to church, to-do list, you know, you go to Sunday school, to-do list, take your Bible Sunday school, to-do list. If you're hyper-committed, you go to Tuesday night visitation. As a teenager, you know, you go to youth camp, you go to the youth gathering. So there was a clear to-do list and then a, a not-to-do list. And again, the 80s, it was the true love waits. It was, you know, the movies you watch, you didn't watch. It was all those sorts of things. So a lot, I, I refer to myself jokingly as a, as a recovering fundamentalist, uh, as a recovering <laughs> legalist. At the same time, though, I look back, and I don't long for those days, but there was a sweetness in the the pursuit, I might say, right. um, that the desire was often right. So I don't want to overcorrect and say, man, just live as you want to live. You know, we're, we're not antinomians. We're not, we're not libertines in that sense. But at the same time, what does it mean to live, not under to-do list, under Christ's finished accomplishment, but with that in mind, what does the gospel and God's word actually have to say to the different, the different arenas of life, the different categories of life? I believe, and uh, you do as well, uh, we believe that that the gospel indeed not only speaks to but impacts these different dimensions, one's work, one's play, uh, one's worship, uh, one's use of one's money, how one structures one's family. So throughout the book, I'm trying to say, look, there there is divine intentionality to more of your life than merely your, your Sunday morning. By God's grace and by the power of the Spirit, you are called to live that way, but you are also enabled to live that way. And as you do, you will find yourself flourishing and uh, most radiating the glory of God and also living a life marked by greater joy and greater personal fulfillment. Now, I think you had two parts to the question, and I, and I may have answered one of the parts. No, no, that was good, okay. actually. And it sets up sort of my next question pretty well, which is the reason I think it's pretty unique is just how central the gospel is to it. If I could sort of... Um, you know, scattershot diagnose what I think is the problem with a lot in the Christian living genre is not that there's not anything helpful in them or anything like that, but so often they're sort of detached from the power to, um, you know, obey the checklist or follow the checklist and that sort of thing. And so what I love about your book is just how, you know, front and center the finished work of Christ really is. Every chapter begins with the gospel and, and you've got work and time and marriage and, and recreation and your past and that sort of thing. 
Why is it important to keep the gospel at, at the forefront of all of those things? Well, I think one reason is theological, one reason is practical. Okay, theologically, we are who we are because of the gospel of Christ. Um, we are redeemed by Christ. We are filled with Christ's spirit. We are given Christ's word. And so we literally cannot do anything that glorifies Christ apart from the power and the finished work of Christ. So part of this is just a, a theological kind of, kind of reassertion, chapter by chapter, a reminder of that we are people who have been redeemed. I mean, we, Ephesians 2 tells us we are dead in our trespasses in a sense. We've been made alive through Christ. So that's, that's a, a theological reality. It's also a, a practical reality because, again, back to kind of the checklist dynamic, um, man, if we're not careful, this can just like a manual we carry in our back pocket. And, and it's about how we, you know, how we don't speak as far as bad words, how we don't spend our money as regards to a poor stewardship. And if, it's, if we're just engaged at that level, um, Christianity is a whole lot less appealing and Christ is um, a whole lot less honored through our lives. Yeah. And then practically, how's the gospel sort of empowering the day-to-day obedience, would you say? Yeah. So by that, I mean, the practical piece is this, and I, I have not coined this phrase or this concept. I, it, I, I inherit it from others. But the reality is I, I was converted my freshman year in college as an 18-year-old. I, as we record today, I'm 41 years old. So I'm, I'm, I'm hitting, if I'm already in, that, that glorious stage of life we call middle age. Well, that, that's now more than two decades ago. When I became a believer, um, there was a freshness, a sense of exhilaration, not just over the fact that my sins have been forgiven, but over the fact as to what my life now would be about. And so the, the concept that, uh, that I, I'm, I'm borrowing here for this analogy is, man, the day after I got saved, the cross was really big because it happened yesterday. A week after I got saved, the cross was really big because it happened a week ago. Mm-hmm. A month, a month ago, a year, a year ago. Well, I, I'm 20 years removed from that now. And if I'm merely looking at my rearview mirror over an event and a season of life in late summer, early fall of 1995, man, that, that cross is like a, a dot on the horizon in my rearview mirror. But if I remind myself daily and purpose to re-explore and re-engage daily the gospel, the cross, what Christ has done for me, then it's not something that's like 20 years ago and I'm trying to, you know, almost make myself uh you know, force myself into stirring up my affections for Christ. Right. And we got to resort to analogies. You know, we've all heard you can't, man, you'll cry over a dog being hit you know, by a car, but you won't die over, you won't cry over Christ dying on a cross for you and all these <laughs> right. other cheesy things yeah. you've heard to try. Yeah. No, but, but if this is actually something before me and not just behind me. Well, then I'm not having to kind of make myself feel it from an emotional level and a spiritual level, but it's right before me. And so practically, it's it, it's it's there before me and how I, I live and plan my life and spend my money and how I recreate and how I view my past and the sins of my life and how I structure my home and all that. Yeah. So I don't know if that makes sense or not. No, it does. Yeah. And in, in, in the introduction, you use the analogy of sort of a home renovation as it applies to sort of the, you know, the work of the Christian life. Could you flesh out, you know, that kind of analogy? Yeah, sure. So I, I talk about in the introduction of the book, the, the Vivian House, where my family and I live. And so we were brought to Midwestern Seminary. God called us here in the fall of 2012. The Vivian House was originally built in the 1860s, burned to the ground in the 1940s, was rebuilt. This beautiful old farmhouse, it spans four floors, uh, just a really fun house to get to live in. When we first went into it, I still remember when we were here visiting campus, my wife and our five young children, our kids are playing hide and seek. And it's just it's just this old home. There was an old uh, buzzer system in it. I mean, so it's kind of okay. funny, almost like Downton Abbey. So in the kitchen, there's a buzzer board. 
Each room had a call button. So you press the button in the master bedroom, and a button lights up and buzzes and vibrates that shows services needed in the master bedroom. <laughs> okay. And so, yeah, now the funny thing is, of course, no one would come if we pressed the button, so there was no need to have it. But my point is, there's this really cool old house. Well, it was going to be renovated or, or remodeled, I should say, at that juncture, and we were thinking some carpet and some paint and some relatively modest expenditures just to get the house livable. We get in there. We mean the contractor, and he comes to me and says, Dr. Allen, you know, there's a mold issue throughout the house. Dr. Allen, your north, the north wall of the house is rotted because the roof has been leaking for years. Dr. Allen, the septic tank, uh, the, the septic line has collapsed in the basement. And so it was just like a, a litany of things that were wrong. And I don't mean like selective preferential. You know, we've always wanted a, uh, a red, you know, the wall painter. I mean <laughs> right, like, no, right. like to live in it, you got to fix it Structurally, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so for me, I found that analogy, meaning I thought the Christian life was going to be kind of a fresh coat of paint and some fresh carpet. Mm. And, and there was just going to be a tweak, and you know, I'd, I'd speak a little nicer, have a generally more positive attitude. And Christ came to my life, and he's knocking out walls. He's plowing up the foundation. I mean, this whole thing is looking different uh, instantaneously and ongoingly. And again, back to the analogy, like an old house, we got a lot done. There, there's always something. I mean, there's always a leaky faucet. There's always you know, a little electrical glitch. There's always something because the house is old and big, and that just comes with, with the territory. That's what it is in my life. Like, yeah. I'm senator president, but there's always something. There's always something to be repented over. There's always something to confess. There's always something to, to remind myself of the gospel of Christ and his forgiveness over. And so the analogy is conversion in the Christian life is so much bigger than I ever imagined when I was an 18-year-old kid. And that work continues to this day. Oh, I love that. Just the the idea of really sanctification, progressive sanctification as, as sort of the continuing ripple effect of conversion, that it's almost like a re, you're not getting re-justified, but would you say it's sort of a reconversion in a sense? In a sense, well, I, I wouldn't say a reconversion. I would say it's this, it's this continuing yeah. outworking of conversion. Hmm. And, you know, and look, again, you, you and I are, essentially the same age, close to being the same age, and, and, and you, you live this different seasons of more growth, different times in your life where whether it's busyness or distraction or whatever, you find yourself more distant, and then you have other seasons where there's a, a, a greater sweetness and a more perception of, of, of God's grace in your life and, and growth you're experiencing through Christ. And so the book is to kind of help help chart that and to help incentivize that and help point to what Christ is doing in you throughout those seasons of life. Yeah, no, that's great. You, you have two chapters in the book, one chapter on work, one chapter on— oh, you have more than two chapters, but the two chapters I want to focus on, on work and recreation, um, which I found really helpful. In, in my experience, most people tend to um, fall to one extreme or the other. It's, it's really rare to find somebody who vacillates between workaholism and laziness. Usually we're wired one way or the other. Um, first of all, why do you— if you agree with that, why do you think that is? And secondly, how does the gospel sort of address each of those um, pendulum swing sins? Yeah, I, I would answer that a couple of different ways. First of all, we have to realize how truly unique our own season is in history of humanity. And by our season, I mean post-industrialization, mm. okay? So before that, you know, you were a farmer because your dad was a farmer and, and his dad was a farmer, and you had a farm because you were hunters and gatherers, and that's how you, you just kind of lived. There was no—you didn't go meet your high school guidance counselor about a career, right. a career selection, Right. <laughs> And then if you weren't doing that, you maybe were a blacksmith or a you know, clergyman. I mean, just the options were, were, were very limited. And then our, you come into the post-industrialized world and you begin to have these different jobs that are taken and, and these different opportunities for jobs. 
And so, so for instance, um, my father, who who I love dearly and who provided for our family, uh, he worked for for decades at a at a paper company, which was a very good job. It paid him well. Um, health insurance was provided for his family. That career choice was driven not so much by a romantic call in his mind, but by I got to have a job to provide for my family. Right. And so the the that that for many people, not just my father, but for so many people, perhaps the majority of people, it's more of a pragmatic assessment: is how do I provide for my family? Okay. Not unworthy, not ignoble. Yeah. But for others of us like me, um, going into ministry, that sense of calling was there and is there and very clear. So I can find myself leaning into kind of the workaholism because really, literally for me, my, my vocation is my avocation. So it's not out of some sense of, man, I got to prove myself and I'm trying to make more money or whatever. And so I'm going to work 60 hours a week. No, just, I love what I'm doing so much. And so I remember saying back to my dad, I remember saying to my dad one time many years ago when I was pastoring a church about, um, you know, I, I just love what I get to do so much. I can't can't wait to kind of get up in the morning. And he's kind of joking me the comment. He said, yeah, that was my life too. And, and of course, it wasn't. It, it was just a, a job that was taken because of providing for the family and caring for the family and so forth. So what I'm trying to say, Jared, through that kind of rambling answer, rambling analogy is this. The workaholic, a person like me, sometimes it's because a guy's trying to make a bunch of money. Sometimes it's because a guy is it's an ego thing. Sometimes it's because a guy doesn't want to care for his family and he hides behind his job. Others of us in ministry, oftentimes it's because of we love what we do so much. We have such a profound sense of calling there that we're leaning into it. And we need to be intentional to rein that in because maybe the motives are right and the calling is strong. And, man, you're loving what you're doing, but still can have deleterious effects on your family and deleterious effects on other other aspects of your life. Right, right. Well, then so on the opposite side, what's uh, if you had to diagnose sort of the root of laziness, right? I mean, we all agree laziness is a sin. But what's the sin underneath? What's the tendency for those who go the other way, man, I don't know. Uh, you know. <laughs> it's such a foreign concept. Yeah, that's too. right. Yeah, I've never. No, no I, I'm going to take a stab at it here. Maybe selfishness. Okay. Maybe I, I don't know. And look, I, please hear me, man. I'm I, I can be. I'm like anyone. I'm a fallen person. I can have moments of laziness, moments of distraction. Usually, it's not you know whatever. I want to sleep in until 10 a.m. I'm not wired that way. But it's, I want to just kind of chase a rabbit hole on social media. You know, which is yeah. its own form of laziness. It's a distraction right. of doing that. That's not a good use of time. Um, so I don't know what's behind it, but I do know this. We have to be careful in, in ministry. I'm going to say a word here to ministers because uh, perhaps the majority of those listening would be in ministry. Um, man, in the 20th century, ministers were kind of officially workaholics. And so when I went to seminary 15 years ago, you know, kind of the the wisdom there in the late 20th century, early 20, early 21st century, you'd hear a lot is, man, don't lose your family, don't lose your family, don't lose your family, don't lose your family. And that's, like, really important advice. One brief footnote here. I once pastored a church where there was a gentleman in the church whose father had been the pastor of the church during the heyday of the church from 1940s to the 1960s. He played Little League, high school, college baseball. And he once told me, my father, who was the pastor during the heyday, he never saw me play baseball one time. And he actually didn't say that, like, greed. He should have been greed. But he's like, you know, I just always knew my dad was doing the Lord's work, so it didn't bother me. So my point is, I was counseled in seminary, like many of the listeners, in the late 20th century, early 21st century, as a correction to that guy who was in my church whose father was, all I did was, you know, visit people. I want to be careful here because I hear sometimes so much emphasis on don't lose your family, don't work too much. I, I worry maybe we're hiding behind that a little bit, maybe. Hmm. Um, and again, I don't really want to lose your family. I certainly have, have valued and prioritized my family. 
But I want to be careful that we don't hide behind our family when we're just really kind of like hanging out surfing the Internet. Right. And so I don't know. You know, at times the church overcorrects. Maybe we're in danger of overcorrecting a little bit. Maybe yeah. ministers need to be careful there and find find some healthy balance between the two poles. I think so. I think, you know, we're always sort of swinging one way or the other. How, how does the gospel specifically, do you think, ad, you know, address or, or instill that balance or at least help us cultivate that balance? Yeah, I, I think I would answer it this way first and foremost. Where do we find our self-worth? Hmm. And look, I'm preaching to the choir here, preaching to myself. i got to be careful daily that my self-worth is not found in, you know, building a building on campus or record enrollment or a great faculty addition. But, but ultimately, my self-worth is found in, in who I am in Christ. And in the scales of eternity, God is not impressed by me having record enrollment last year. He's just not. I mean, that's a part of my stewardship here, Yes. But I want to order my life in a way that Christ is honored in the vicissitudes, just like he is honored in the big public components of it. And if my life is out of whack because I'm so given to ministry or to hitting goals ministerially or whatever, that these other things are out of balance because I have misassessed my self-worth, then there's a problem. Yeah, that's good. Beyond the obvious connection of grace as a doctrine and what we teach and preach um, in the church, why is remembering the grace of God important for Christians as they think about the experience of going to church? You have a chapter on on being a healthy church member, essentially. Why is the gospel so important for that experience? As it relates to the local church? Yes. Well, I, I think, first of all, understanding we are to be ongoing recipients of the grace of God. And, and by that, obviously, I'm not referring to justification. We, we're declared right, made right by the finished work of Christ um, through conversion. But if we understand the local church right, and we understand what's taking place on the Lord's Day right, th- that is a, a conduit for God's grace through the preached word we're receiving, through the fellowship and stimulation we're receiving from the saints, through the singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, through the confession of our sins, through the celebration of, of the, sac- the, the sacraments, the Lord's Supper, and, and baptism. Those are all conduits where we interact with the grace of God as being displayed and as being channeled through the life of the local church. There's a getting on that. There's a giving on that as we are a part and a participant in the body of Christ. What is more, I want to say that we have to be really careful that we don't normalize the world based upon how we see um, and how we interact with the world. Okay, so what do I mean by that? So, so for me, um, you know, I, I don't really struggle with a lot of guilt. Now, you may say because my conscience isn't nearly tender enough, and, and may, maybe that's it. <laughs> but um, I've always just been, whether it's how God has wired me, if it's whatever the Spirit at work in me, now I've been, like, really easy to forgive. I mean, it, it's I, I, there have been times in my life, Jared, honestly, where I've, like, wanted to, like, harbor, you know, <laughs> like, I, I want to, like, I want to stay mad at this person for a while, you know, but I just, I'm not wired that way. Yeah. I, I forgive easily. Um, at the same time, uh, I don't have trouble getting my mind around the fact like, well, well, God has forgiven me. So I don't take that lightly. I don't, I don't therefore treat sin lightly, but I don't live with a, a heavy sense of guilt over something I did when I was 17 years old. I don't. I, at the same time, though, I have to be aware of the fact, man, in the church, there are a lot of people who live with a lot of guilt over an abortion they have when they were 17. Yeah. There are a lot of people who live with a lot of guilt over a sharp word, word they spoke to their spouse or to their parent eight years ago. There are a lot of people who live with a lot of guilt over um, over the fact that someone isn't for, hasn't forgiven them. 
So my, my point is, I don't want to just standardize the Christian life, and I've sought not to it to the book and just say, well, man, if I'm not struggling with this particular sin, then I, you know nobody is. Or if I'm not struggling with this particular heartache, no one is. Oh, that's good. Uh, there are people struggling in our churches. Yeah. And a part of that community dynamic is, for me, as a seminary president, as a Christian minister, to reassure people of the grace of God, even if I don't need that reassurance personally in that particular way or in this particular season of life. Yeah. What about, just from the aspect, just, you know, your unique position, um, you know, the, uh, I don't say the professionalization of uh, of ministry, but, you know, I've been in ministry a long time. It's very hard sometimes walking into a church to kind of turn off the evaluative, you know, aspect um, of the experience. Is that difficult for you to do as well? I mean, how do you kind of turn the corner on um, not forgiving, but but giving grace in that sense of you know? The it, I would say it's yes and no. Meaning, I used to be um, really critical of preaching, honestly, I, and not like I wasn't trashing people like in the back of my mind. Sure, you sure. Know? And um, I, I would before coming to Midwestern Seminary, I would say um, probably in uh, the mid two thousands. And I want to drop a nugget here of confidence to someone. I heard Albert Moeller be so gracious conversationally about preachers, hmm. and that really was instructive to me. I went to work with him, the president's office at Southern Seminary, in early two thousand six. And there'd be times, man, we leaving 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 chapel, and I'm thinking, man, that guy just like preached a horrible sermon, right? You know. And I would hear him not criticize or even say a positive word. And I'd be like, man, my goodness, he's, you know, obviously much more senior to me in accomplishment, et cetera. And, and like, he's not criticizing that sermon. Well, then what, you know? And so that was a, a very needed corrective for me in the mid 2000s. Yeah. Uh, additionally, I heard a professor who's now with the Lord by the name of Chip Stam. He, he would say this often. He would say the maturing believer is easily edified. Mm. And, uh, and so I just kind of made first by choice and then just, whatever second nature, man, just, I'm just not going to services to analyze their music. I'm not going to services to analyze the sermon, you know, trying to get the most out of it. Obviously you get a point if we're a pastor's unfaithful week in, week out, you, you may have to make, make some decisions about where you attend and, right. and the church you're part of. Right. But as far as just going through life, evaluating sermons and preachers, if you do that, you're just, you're, you're, you're losing because you're not getting half the sermon. Yeah. And then I would say finally for me, after serving in local church ministry and pastoral ministry for close to 10 years, local church ministry, roughly 15, I mean, I just made a decision um, when I came to Midwestern Seminary and even before then, like when I was joining a church more as a participant than a leader, like my goal in life is to be the nicest, happiest church member a pastor could ever have. You know, like that's my goal in life after having been on the other end of this. Yes. And I'm sure I've fulfilled that very imperfectly. But um, I mean, I'm just I'm just not going to be complaining about the music. I'm not going to be complaining about the sermon. I'm not going to be complaining about carpet needs to be clean. I just, you know, I know what that's like. I've lived that. I know the pressures a pastor has. Like my goal is just to be like the number one best church member this pastor's ever had. And yeah. again, I've done that imperfectly, I know, but at least that's kind of my, my goal going in. No, that's excellent. And I think your book actually can be a help to that for, you know, for the average believer who picks it up. Dr. Allen, thanks so much. Oh, thank you. It's been a joy to talk about the book and the Christian life and uh, a host of other things. I'm, I'm grateful that B&H published it. Uh, I guess to give a brief little plug, it's available kind of anywhere. It's even in Barnes & Noble, which is kind of cool. Yeah. For me, you know, seeing it no, in there. Awesome. And uh, my wife was at the plaza the other day and st- walked in Barnes & Noble, Jared, and it was actually like face out. There you go. And I didn't go in ahead of her and do no, that. No, she didn't do and it so herself like, either. Like, huh? You're kidding me. Like, who did that? We have a student working in there that did it. So anyway, I uh, appreciate folks picking it up. Uh, B&H, Lifeway's made available bulk, bulk purchase for five bucks a volume, so for Bible studies and church groups. So in any event, thank you for the conversation. No, that's excellent. 
We've been speaking with Jason Allen, president of Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary and College, author of several books, including this brand new book, Being a Christian, How Jesus Redeems All of Life. Um, I would just sort of second the notion in terms of picking up multiple copies. Uh, It'd be an excellent book to go through with a discipleship group, Sunday school class, small group, that sort of thing. And as always, if you like this podcast, please share it with your friends. Review us on iTunes. Every little bit helps. And until next time, may Jesus be big in your church. You've been listening to the For the Church podcast, hosted by Jared Wilson, managing editor of For the Church, found online at ftc.co. This resource is brought to you by Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, where we train leaders for the church. Midwestern Seminary's 81-hour Master of Divinity degree prepares you for ministry today and tomorrow. Midwestern Seminary's flagship degree program is our primary track for ministry preparation. Requiring only 81 credit hours, the MDiv program is an efficient option for students, equipping them to serve the church in pastoral ministry. Residential students will be trained in a unique community environment passionately focused on the local church. Online students can earn the full degree without leaving their current ministry context. Come be a part of one of the fastest growing seminaries in North America as we develop a new culture of discipleship devoted to the local church and committed to taking God's unchanging word into a rapidly changing world. Visit mbts.edu slash mdiv today.